on 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and an absolute privilege to have uh, two guests joining me from Real Life Resilience uh, via the wonders of Zoom. Ben Pettingill and Mike Rolls join me and uh, it is great to have you guys with us. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having us, Clayton. Great to have you here. We'll uh, hear each of your stories and we're going to specifically talk about resilience, something that over the past uh, year and a half and, and certainly uh, even as we're going through this time, uh, a lot of us are, are, are hearing that word a whole lot more. Um, before we actually get to what real life resilience is and your definitions of resilience and all those sorts of things, maybe we can actually hear your stories because uh, together uh, you've gone through an awful lot. Um, Mike, can we perhaps start with you? What's your story uh, that led you into a place where well, you and Ben are actually now working together? Can we hear that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so resilience has certainly been a requirement and a necessity for me in my life. Um, I, uh, I went through something pretty traumatic when I was 18 years old. I remember uh, I was a mad sportsman like, growing up. I, um, I loved to play any type of sport, whether it was footy, tennis, soccer, cricket, whatever. I was always out and about. Um, loved running around um, until all hours. And uh, I loved playing football also. And when I was 18, I played in the Southern Football League down in Southeast uh, sub, southeastern suburbs in Hyatt and I played with a great bunch of guys but a lot of them were were um, you know ex-AFL ex-VFL players that end up like in the scrap heap and they end up playing their, out their career when they're sort of mid-30s and stuff great guys but we decided um, after a pretty successful year in 2001 to go across to Tasmania to celebrate for an end of season football trip and uh, I, I just couldn't wait I, I remember so clearly waking up the morning uh, that I was going off with some mates to have a Oh, you know, a few days of, of, uh, of great fun, uh, celebration, all that sort of stuff. I remember mum drove me to a friend's house, uh, one of my teammates' houses. And from there, we went across to the airport down to Hobart. And my last memory, funnily enough, was actually just giving my mum a kiss on the cheek and saying goodbye to her. And then I jumped in the car and off we went to the airport. And uh, that was, like I said, last memory that I had. Uh, and then and all of a sudden... It was almost like someone clicked their fingers and I wake up after a five and a half week coma uh, back in Melbourne at the Alfred Hospital and it turns out that I'd, uh, I'd breathed in, uh, or maybe I'd, I'd, I'd shared a drink or something, which is quite topical at the moment with everything we're going through. So for some reason, um, or I was, or, you know, at the end of the season, maybe my, my immune system was compromised, but I breathed in at the wrong time and, and uh, I contracted the deadly meningococcal septicemia. And um, apparently I went on that trip and I had a fantastic time um, from all reports from all my teammates later on told me that, I, that I'd had a great time and everything away. But um, yeah, I'd, 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 I'd contracted this awful disease. Uh, I was due to fly home uh, at the airport and I was too sick. They said, you should probably uh, stay back. And, and it, I eventually went from the airport by ambulance back to the Hobart Hospital. And from there, they called my parents after they diagnosed them meningococcal and said, get down to Hobart your son's got about one hour to live. Um, so they'd sent away a happy, healthy 18-year-old kid. And, and then, uh, you know, within, you know, what felt like a few days, I was fighting for my life. So I was very, very fortunate to have a, a great family. They, uh, they went back, they were all sort of mobilised, went down to Hobart uh, to be with me and be around me. Um, there wasn't a great deal that they could do. Uh, the sepsis had taken hold. I had pretty significant uh, internal and external uh, damage. And I think there was... We've got a very, very close family friend, um, Father Gerald, uh, his name is, down at uh, Hope, he's uh, the chaplain at Royal Hobart Hospital. And uh, he gave me the prayer of the last rites, I think three times. Um, and uh, they were 
sort of expecting around about a 5% chance to, to pull through. So it was pretty grim, it's fair to say, um, uh, over that period. And I was asleep. I don't remember any of this sort of stuff, but eventually I sort of pulled through those tougher times, got transferred back to, to the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne where they could probably handle my case a little bit better given how sick I was. Uh, and then I woke up and that wake up was gradual, uh, obviously a lot of pain and, and not knowing where the hell I was or what was going on. And uh, slowly it dawned on me and, and slowly I was being told by my parents and doctors and everyone that, um, you know, of the devastation that this disease had caused and the surgeries that I'd been through while I was asleep. I'd lost my right leg below my knee. I'd lost most of my left foot, which was sort of taken away right at the arch. I had skin grafting all over my, my legs uh, where they had to take away uh, the dead tissue, which is what the disease does. It cuts off your blood supply, these sorts of things. And uh, two of my fingers on my right hand, that was actually the first thing I noticed when I woke up. I'm thinking, oh, goodness me, like what is going on here? I had a shed across my waist. Um, and then uh, the internal damage too. I had some pretty significant liver, liver and kidney damage and some bleeds in the brain. Um, and also uh, one of the other things which was um, totally alien and, and totally unusual was I couldn't speak or say anything or ask any questions because I had a, this tracheotomy tube in my neck, uh, which was um, you know, keeping me alive, helped me to breathe, these sorts of things. So like I said, um, went from uh, happy, healthy, able to do anything I wanted to being in a hospital bed um, and not being able to lift my head off the pillow. So that change in itself was incredibly difficult to, first of all, comprehend and understand what had happened. Um, and then the, even the thought uh, of, of what, what was life going to be like beyond that was quite terrifying. Um, and I didn't know any answers and nor did anyone. Uh, we weren't sure what the outcomes were going to be. We weren't sure whether or not there was a few touch and go moments when, you know, I had issues with uh, infection and these sorts of things. Um, but finally, when I went um, after three months in the Alfred, I, I got transferred when I was well enough across to Caulfield General Medical Center, where I was, uh, that's where my rehab journey uh, began. And it was uh, away from a life and death situation. And it was onto a, well, how do you move on from such devastation? And, and that was where that, um, that journey began. And it was an awful um, start. I remember, you know, being transferred up from uh, from the from the rehab ward up until um, up to the the amputee ward, and I got to meet some other amputees that I'd never, you know, it was a pretty weird experience being an eighteen year old kid never having met an amputee. Now I was one, and I was I was talking to other guys that had come off motorbikes and workplace accidents and these sorts of things. And um, but to be honest, that experience of meeting other people, in, even in the early days and connecting, uh, was very valuable, very powerful, and, and something that I I treasure. Um, and something I think that I don't think I would have gone, got, gotten through as well uh, that rehab stage as well as I did without the support and help of those other guys with lived experience. Um, and that was a three-month journey when I finally, you know, after, after six long months, I was able to go home. And, and that's when um, I guess life started again, uh, so to speak. We're going to come back and uh, hear the next parts of that in, in a couple of minutes' time as well and, and the next steps that, that go from there. But, Ben, uh, we'd love to hear your story as well. And you've also had um, a, a very sort of dramatic, uh, you know, 24-hour period. It certainly felt like that for Mike, uh, and it, it was literally like that for you. Could you tell your story? Absolutely, Clayton. Uh, absolutely love hearing hearing Mike tell his story uh, time and time again when we, when we speak in schools and speak to a whole range of different audiences. And Mine is quite similar, like you say, at 16 years old. I was one of those kids that thought I was 
school than I actually was sitting right at the back of the classroom and looking at the diagram that the teacher was drawing on the board, something didn't seem quite right about it. I turned to one of my mates beside me, asking him if he saw the same thing, saying, mate, does that diagram on the board, does that look blurry to you? Because when I was looking at it, I could still see all of the, the shapes, the colours, the lines that the teacher was drawing, but it just seemed as if it was a tiny little bit hazy, similar to that feeling that we all get when we look at a really bright light or the sun for a few seconds too long. Then when you look away, it just takes that split second to readjust. It's like having that mini headache, that blurry filter over your eyes. Mm. That was similar to what I was experiencing in the, in the classroom. I could read my textbook, read the answers that I was writing to the questions. I could read everything on my phone, all good but something wasn't quite right. And I just had that gut instinct, that intuition that something wasn't quite right. Couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was. So I turned to my parents. Dad was not only my dad growing up, also my best mate, always had great advice. So I thought he'll know what to do in this situation. Gave him a call, explained everything that was happening and said, Dad, what should we do where everything's a little bit blurry? He said, mate, don't worry about it. It's all good. So perfect advice from dad. Yep, yep. <laughs> just, just take it easy. It's all good. Don't worry about that. But uh, I, I completely trusted in what he said. Only problem was dad then called my mum to tell her, fill her in the situation. Her response wasn't quite as relaxed as dad's. Uh, typical mum, stressing out probably a little bit too much. So all of a sudden, dad was now under strict instruction from mum and we were racing along to the INE hospital in Melbourne to get it all checked out. Mum met us there and into the emergency department. We had test after test after test done, eventually with the doctors sitting us down and really reassuring us that there was nothing to be worried about. It was inflammation of the optic nerve. I was going to be put on a course of medical steroids over the next month and everything would be absolutely fine. I mean, at, my, at that stage, my eyes completely lit up because all I heard was the word steroids and as a 16-year-old teenager... This is, this is amazing. This is going to be the best day of my life. I'm turning them up and saying, how good is this? We should have come sooner. And all the imagination is, is running wild about muscles getting bigger, dating sports teams, girls are going to love me. But Dr. Soon, soon uh, tore that dream down as he uh, very quickly shared with me that he could tell I'd never heard of medical steroids and they do nearly the complete opposite to what the steroids that I had heard of. Uh, usually did so upon hearing that I had to trust the doctor he knew what he was talking about so up we went to hospital uh, up we went to the ward put in the hospital bed steroid drip put in my arm and after saying goodnight to mum and dad and, and then promising they'd be back first thing in the morning they left nurse came in closed those bluey green hospital curtains around my bed and said Ben it's been a really long day uh, long night close your eyes, try and get some sleep. So I turned the TV off that was hanging on the curtain rail at the end of the bed. I quickly sent a couple of text messages to my, my mates and gave them the update about the day, said goodnight to the family, my phone on the bedside table, closed my eyes and tried to get some sleep. And the next morning when I woke up, I looked for the first thing that most of us look for these days when we wake up and open our eyes in the morning, which is our phone. I looked at the bedside table beside me for it but it was gone. I then looked towards the end of the bed where the TV hung the night before on the curtain rail and it was gone. I was starting to think to myself, what's still here that I definitely know is still here? I was so confused and 
I was feeling my hands. I could feel them on the ends of my arms and I had one hand up in front of my face laying in bed and I couldn't even see that. Overnight, I just lost 98% of my eyesight, just like that. Now, as you can imagine, when the doctors found out, they grew more and more concerned. They did a lot more testing over the next two weeks and we got taken back into hospital, sat down with the doctor where they delivered the news that it wasn't just an inflammation of the optic nerve like they originally thought. It was a rare genetic syndrome called Leber's. It was incurable. And I was sat down and told that, unfortunately, it could not be fixed and I was going to be blind for life. So as you can imagine, that uh, that originally crushed all my childhood hopes and dreams in an instant. Yeah. I was going to limit my potential, limit what I could achieve, the relationships I could have, so many different aspects of my life. And I suppose this is where it comes to what was really needed in that instance, which was resilience. And, and that's what Mike and I are really proud to, to talk about and share the lessons that we learned through it, through the adversity that we've faced uh, to schools all around the country and specifically in Victoria now. Yeah. We're going to be back in a couple of moments time as we talk more about that. Uh, there's a whole host of both Mike and Ben's story that we're going to chat through, including some of the remarkable things they've achieved. But I think their, their biggest achievement is to make sure that they are helping so many others uh, understand what this resilience is actually all about. And we're going to talk about that more next here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton. And from Real Life Resilience, we've got Mike Rolls and Ben Pettingill with me. Uh, we've been hearing their story already, how in essence for both of them, in, in just a moment, their lives completely changed. We've been hearing with Mike had meningococcal, ended up having uh, to be in an induced coma for five and a half weeks, uh, had amputations occurring. For Ben, it was losing his eyesight overnight. Uh, quite literally overnight, and suddenly their worlds were changed at the ages of 18 and 16. And, and you know, there's there's huge changes if that happens when you're, you're 50 or 60, but uh, to have it in, in this time uh, as teenagers just sort of starting in life is quite remarkable. Um, ben, let's just stay with your story a bit more. You know, you said that you thought, hey, look, this is going to mean that uh, my life's going to sort of finish. All of the, the hopes and the dreams and the things that I wanted to do are gone. Um, it it hasn't meant that because you've actually been able to go and achieve so much and experience so much, haven't you? And I know that that's how you look at it too, right? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, I get asked quite a lot uh, when when speaking with Mike if I could go back and change what happened, would I? And that's such a tough question. But the answer, honestly, is no. And the reason it's no is because. When we go through challenges, so many opportunities arise and so many opportunities came my way despite losing my eyesight, such as competing in obstacle course races and being one of the first blind people in the world to ever do so, um, water ski racing, crossing the Kokoda track twice and and now going on to to get married and expecting our, our first baby in October. It's, it's those sort of opportunities that have come my way that, I don't think half of them would have come my way in the way that they have and in the manner that they have if I hadn't lost my eyesight. So, I mean, it's not, not just that they come and they're easy to achieve and they're, they're all, all of a sudden ticked off. There's definitely an element of doing things differently despite not being able to see and, and not letting my situation dictate what I can and can't achieve, really embracing and taking ownership of the challenge, I think is, is one of the keys to 
having achieved some of those those things that when I first lost my eyesight, Clayton, to be honest, I thought all of those things that I've just reeled off were going to be impossible. That voice that's inside all of our heads that can get pretty negative and nasty, if we're honest about it, um, that voice was saying, Ben, you're not going to be able to achieve anything in sport, you're not going to be able to travel the world, you're not going to be able to travel independently, let alone meet someone that loves you, get married or, or have kids. And, and to be able to say and sit here today and say that I've not only ticked off some pretty incredible achievements um, that I'm super proud of, but to be able to do that despite not being able to see, I think, um, yeah, it's really testament to a couple of things. And, and the first two things I'll put it down to is being able to take ownership of my own situation, but also lean on the support of, of people around me. There's no way I could have achieved half of those things without the support of family, uh, friends, great mates like Mike, um, people to lean on when you have those, those moments that you doubt yourself because we all do. Um, and such a key part of, of resilience and building resilience in ourselves is having the support of people to lean on because there's plenty of times, whether it was on the Kokoda track or, before jumping in the water to, to ski in the Southern 80, that I was thinking to myself, Ben, this is ridiculous. You can't <laughs> halfway through the middle of the jungle. This is stupid. You've fallen over 86,000 times. And it's in those moments that you've got the support of some of your closest people that you trust the most that can pick you up and say, Ben, we're in this together. The fact that you're blind, that's something that we can't control. Let's focus on what we can control. Let's put our time and energy into that. And let's take, one step at a time, keep going forward and we're going to get closer to the finish line and further away from where we started. So, yeah, definitely definitely a life that at 15, 16, if you had to said, Ben, this is what the next 10 years is going to look like, I'd say, surely you're dreaming. But, yeah, it's been been a wild ride. It's been a roller coaster, but I've loved every minute of it at the same time. Wouldn't change it. Yeah, it's great. Um, Mike, similarly, there's, there's things for you that I would imagine when – you know, you woke up in that hospital bed and, and realised all these things that had occurred to you while you'd been in this coma and, and what life was now going to be. You, you thought, well, I'm not going to be able to achieve that. But there's been great achievements for you too. Could you share a few? Yeah, I, 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 every time I hear Benny speak, I'm like, it's almost ridiculous how common and how similar our, our stories, the common common themes that are, arise throughout the story. I had the same thing. So I was, I was devastated, it's fair to say, and I wasn't in a great headspace. And I think one word uh, that I think Ben and I can relate to and I, I can in particular in those day early days it was a I was in a why me mentality um, and I think we've all we all go through those uh, those why me moments every single day or you know whether it's a small or a large problem and I don't really think that there was a, a situation that I could I could just snap out of that um, you know Ben mentioned support uh, support was just such a massive thing in those early days not just from the family but from all the medical professionals that were helping me to get through that and to try and keep me up when all I wanted to do was, you know, I, I guess wrap my head in the pillow and have a bit of a cry sometimes. Um, but then eventually uh, I was able to have a, a, you know, a couple of really, I guess, pivotal moments where I had to make a decision. I think we all need to make a decision when it comes to facing adversity and facing those tougher times in life. We can continue to exist, you know, in a bit of a denial or a resistance phase uh, where we're just pushing everything away and don't want to accept reality and, and again, Ben mentioned that word ownership, which is a real key pillar of what we speak about. Um, taking ownership of the situation stopped 
the necessity to sit there and just continue to ask a question that I could never, ever answer. You know, why did this have to happen to me? There was no answer to that. You know, I'm never going to, to be able to answer some of those, those questions that I had going on in my head because I just, it was just simply impossible. So I needed to ask a better question and that question became what's next. And I think, you know, about some of the things I've been able to achieve and I look at some of the things Ben's been able to achieve, it's because he has a conscious ability and you know, maintaining a conscious ability to look forward into the future and say, it doesn't matter what you go through or what situation you find yourself in, the first step is the most important one. And that's the one that we uh, you know, get off our butts, so to speak, and, and take a bit of action, a bit of a no-nonsense approach, ask what's next, work out what support you have, take ownership of your situation and step forward into the future to create a bit of momentum when there is none in our lives. So that's, I guess, um, something that I've, I've adopted. It, it's all not all smooth sailing. It's, 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 sometimes it's easier said than done. Um, but since then, I've been able to achieve. Look, I haven't, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, I haven't crossed Kokoda track. Um, and I haven't done the sub 80 water skiing race yet. Yet. No, I, I probably will never do those things because, um, yet, yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yet. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I have done, I have been able to do something. You know, I think, think back and one of my biggest fears was oh, I'm never ever going to be able to play any sport again. There's no way I can do that. Who could play sport without? you know, without their legs. And I say legs because nine years after I got sick originally, I chose to amputate my second leg. So I became a double below the knee amputee um, and, and and making a really tough decision there. Um, I, I remember thinking about the, that idea of sport and, and it being sort of out of reach. And I, I got the opportunity to, to choose. Uh, I could focus my attention on all the things that I could never do, like football, probably not going to play football again. Um, and all those contact sports that I loved and I loved the team element of that sort of stuff. Or I could start focusing on things that I, I maybe could do. And, and that's, I guess, my, one of my greatest uh, memories uh, was being able to um, compete in the very first All Abilities um, Championship in, in Australia, uh, golf, uh, the Australian Open Golf in Sydney. And what was great about that, and probably the most special moment, was having my dad caddy for me. Um, there's nothing quite like uh, getting up onto the green and throwing your ball to your dad and making him clean it <laughs> on the green because he was my whipping boy for a few days, but we shared that experience together. And I remember thinking uh, and looking back at, at all the water that had gone under that bridge and, and how far you know, we'd gone to actually get there it was a pretty special moment. And I couldn't agree more with Ben saying that, you know, someone asked, you know, people often say, if you could go back and change it, I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it, but I'm proud of, of what I've been able to achieve and, and, and things that I've learned along the way. And now I'm, I'm even, um, I'm, I feel, and I'm sure Ben would agree that we feel very privileged to be able to be in a position where we can help um, the next generation of adolescents uh, and young people going through their own issues uh, and use the lessons that we've learned to, to deliver this idea of real life resilience, which I think we can all, all benefit from. Yeah. Let, let's talk about that. Can we start with you, Ben, with um, do you guys actually have a definition of what resilience actually is? Because I'd imagine a lot of people might think of it as different things. How do you guys uh, consider and, and what do you consider resilience? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, Clayton. Uh, I think resilience gets thrown around quite a lot, um, especially in this day and age when we think about the last year and a half with the pandemic and all of the different changes and challenges that have come our way. Resilience is a thing that so many people are lacking or so many people need more of, whether it's at school, whether it's in corporate organisations or anywhere in between. We're all craving this idea of resilience. But the question of what is it, uh, Mike and I talk about 
quite often and, and we're always throwing up different ideas, but we always come back to the same thing. And it's being able to proactively build and take ownership of your situation, put your time and energy into the things that you control, lean on the support of people around you and build momentum to get through any change or challenge. Mm. That's what we define as real life resilience um, because it's practical, that's achievable and it's tangible. It's not something that's uh, this sort of high in the sky idea of an ideal world because realistically life guarantees is one thing and it guarantees change and with change comes challenge and that comes in all different shapes and sizes every single day so we've got to have a way to be able to equip ourselves to, to get through and tackle those challenges and i think the key to building real life resilience is instead of just reacting to it being proactive and getting ready to take on the challenge uh before it comes yeah and so, Mike, are we we reading that right? That if we we're sort of making three choices: a choice to have ownership, a choice to involve support, a choice to say control, and then momentum, sort of the outcome of that. Is that sort of how you guys yeah. look, through, look at this? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that um, it's amazing how powerful it can be uh, to to just vacate excuses from your life about situations. It's so it's so easy to find them. It's so easy to find a, a scapegoat or or a situation or a circumstance or attribute it to something and hang our hat on that. Uh, but it doesn't really get us very far. And that's why I think real life resilience is a very practical approach to it. You know, we can think about, well, what, what practical strategies can we have? Well, I guess that's what Ben, Benny's saying and, and, and what you were just talking about then taking ownership of your situation, even if you didn't cause it can be a really empowering experience to go through you know i didn't cause my disease but i took ownership of the situation and i took ownership to say that well look nothing i can do is going to change that this is my life as it stands how can i move forward and and i guess that the the real critical piece of the puzzle is is not going it alone um you know ben talked about crossing kokoda i can't even imagine how many people you know you'd have to ask questions to to find your way although he'd probably it's been being pretty stubborn probably didn't do that as much and and that experience i can relate to but having the help and not being um, too proud to ask for help when you need it. That's a really, really important step of the way. I remember very, very clearly there was numerous times when I needed help with, with things and, and I resisted that for a long time. But when I started to ask and say, look, I can't do this alone and started to openly ask for help and, and build a, re, you know, a, I guess, a, a support network that I could lean on um, has, has been one of the really powerful experiences. And what that does is it sets you up to do exactly what we were just speaking about before, to take the first step. A lot of people, I guess we always talk about motivation. You know, Ben and I, I guess you could call us, uh, we, we spoke for many, many years individually and now we've joined forces to create one solid, really, really great message and, and being two great mates, doing it in a very fun, positive way. Uh, have liked to have a lot of laughs with ourselves uh, on stage, but everyone calls, I guess you could call us motivational speakers, but I think motivation kind of irks me a little bit because motivation can come and go, you know, like we have times when we're highly motivated, we have times when we just don't feel like doing anything. But a better way to think about it is in those times when we're not feeling motivated, momentum is a much more powerful way to approach it. And the way that we gather momentum is to simply take the first step. Um, it can be really daunting to have big goals uh, and not know a path to those goals. But when we create um, those small stepping stones on the way to those goals, they become a reality. And the more momentum we get, the harder it is to stop us in life. And I think that's where we both, uh, this idea of real life resilience comes. And I think Ben summed it up beautifully when he talked about exactly what resilience means to both of us. 
Yeah, that's great. Um, Ben, so you know, you, you formed together as uh, as a, a couple of guys who, as we've been sharing, have had similar experiences in a, in a sense to say, look, real life resilience is what we're going to be about. That's our that's our message that we want to share. Um, and Ben, you've actually then decided to target a specific sort of audience. I, I'm sure that your message is for anybody and everybody, but for you guys, um, it's got something to do with high school kids. How did you come around that you said, look, this is a real focus that we want to look at? Yeah, really good question. It's such a challenging time in our lives. I think there's probably two key reasons. Probably the first being the fact that Mike and I, Mike at 18, me at 16, we both experienced these quite different but very similar extreme uh, adversities at that teenage stage of our lives. So it's really, really relatable for high school students. Um, it's, a, it's a great way to share perspective when you've got an audience sitting there saying, wow, these two two things, these two situations happen to, to these two guys that we're hearing from at the exact same age that we're at now. So in terms of perspective and in terms of relatability, that's that's a real key um, for us. But in terms of that that period of our lives from sort of that 12 to 18 years old, it's such a tough time, such a challenging time where experiencing so much change uh, in the modern world with the pressure of social media, how connected we are, uh, the the expectations that we put on ourselves these days, uh, the expectations that gets put on us from parents, family, teachers. There's so much added pressure that doesn't need to be there. And I think Mike and I in Real Life Resilience, we come in to simplify all that, to, to strip away all the noise, to strip away all of the, the hype and the pressure and really break down sort of the, the key steps that, that students and young people can take in their own lives to, to really be in control of their own destiny. Yeah. Really, really passionate about Um we absolutely love doing it and it's such an impressionable, impressionable time in, in young people's lives that the more tools and strategies and stories that they can be exposed to, hear, relate to and connect to, it's going to help them get through all of those changes, changes and challenges they're experiencing in that period of their lives and really set them up for a really strong future. Yeah. And is there a way that you measure the win, I suppose, Ben? Like, is there a way to measure that you go, look, I, I, we know we're having that difference or is it the fact that you just, um, you know, actually ha- sharing the stories, as you said, that's actually part of what the win is? Sharing the stories, definitely um, for us, our stories are just a tool. So it's hearing their stories coming back to us and Great. we're always strong on on receiving feedback. So all the students that we work with, uh, they'll fill in surveys and quite a lot of the schools that we work with, Clayton, we work with year on year on year. So we're being able to go back and then measure the impact, not just over the, the single day visit that we've gone to that school, but then we might run a year-long program with the school when we have multiple touch points with a certain year level. So it's really important to measure the growth and, and the impact in certain students and groups of students over that period of time. But then going back and seeing the change in growth year on year uh, in different year groups, different school groups, uh, different individuals and and when you can go to schools and, and hear conversations and have conversations with people in the audience and young people afterwards coming up to us and saying, look, before today, I was really struggling with anxiety. I was struggling with my mental health. 
I had no self-belief, no self-confidence, really low self-worth. But after hearing both of your stories today and some of your tools, I actually have a lot more belief in myself that maybe I can achieve that, that dream that I've been too scared to, to share. And they share that with us. And to us, that's the impact. Um, that makes it all worthwhile for us. Yeah, that's great. Um, Mike, I, I wanted to ask you a specific question. You, you, you sort of touched on it briefly as you told your story as well. Mm. But both of you had these moments where um, resilience was, I suppose, um, you know, put on you. You're either going to accept it or you weren't going to accept yeah, it in, in sure. your story. But then you said there was nine years past and you chose to then amputate a part of yep. your leg that was effectively was, you know, in, in a way wasn't doing much, but it was a part of what it was from the, the past. Like this is what, how yeah. I looked at your story. And there was this sort of chosen resilience to, to get rid of something to yep. allow something going forward. Can you, can you just take us through? Um, Cause I'd imagine, I mean, I, I don't have that experience clearly, but to actually choose to do that, it yeah. seems like a, you know, a, a, a mega choice of resilience in a way. Yep. Yeah, look, oh, I, I'd say absolutely. It was, um, you know, when we think about what we're talking about in schools and the messages we pass along, and that's the, the ultimate um, form of ownership is was to, I guess, um, choose to amputate uh, a part of your body um, against probably some, some advice of doctors that probably said that wasn't the best uh, path to go down. But yeah, nine years I spent dealing with a leg that was just, um, you know, no good to be honest, it was causing pain. It would break down all the time. I used to have to dress it every second day and I kind of put up with it. And I think that that is the message that people, you know, really resonate with, you know, obviously when you're, when you're talking about things in our lives that we keep there that we don't necessarily need or don't necessarily add value to us, but we keep there anyway. Um, and and that's what where the decision came from. I literally made a list and I weighed up the pros and cons of this leg. And the only con to not taking action with that leg was, um, I won't. I won't have to go to hospital. That was the only con. Like I don't. I, that was. I, I. If I did nothing, the only benefit of doing nothing was the fact that I would avoid going into hospital again. So the the list of benefits to having a leg that was now, um, you know, same as my other side. I could wear a leg on it. I'd be in less pain. It was no. There was no wound to deal with anymore. The list of benefits for that were, were endless. Um, but I was just being, you know, stuck on that one. That one point of, you know, like an avoid hospital and. And that situation, and it was an awful thing to do and to go through, but it was the best decision that I've ever made in my life. And, and that was about taking ownership. And, and as we said, ownership goes into support. And the reason why support's so important, if you think about the audience that we've chosen to speak to, you know, one in four adolescents has a mental illness. It's, it's you know, the numbers are, are quite, quite significant. And then the other thing that we, you know, things that stick out from the Black Dog Institute and those sorts of things is 65% of adolescents that don't seek support when they are struggling. So this idea of asking for help, getting up there and saying, hey, listen, we've been through something really tough, you know, and it wasn't just us that went through it, it was everyone. And we had to have an enormous support network, not just people, but things in our life that we could lean on to get us through those things. And, and that's why I think it's so important that we're doing the work that we're doing is if we can reduce the numbers and have outcomes like Ben was talking about where people come up to you after and they say, hey, listen, I've really been struggling, but I really appreciate, first of all, hearing your story, but what you've said and what tools you've actually told us, some practical tools so that they can then build real life resilience into their own life, you know, and, and deal with things, you know, like coping with stress and anxiety, as Ben said, 
and also dealing with you know mental health mental health issues and even things like body image which is a major concern in our age group we're talking to if you've got a guy with no legs standing up there chatting about confidence and being able to move forward and a guy that can't see you know these sorts of things it really puts it into perspective for people yeah yeah um ben i, I love the fact that you know as you guys are talking about this ownership support that the, the choice of control and the momentum are, are things that we can apply um generally all of us can apply it to our lives in in incredible ways and i, I love how you guys have highlighted that um what's the, the 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 big picture for real life resilience it seems like you could be you know just continuing and continuing and, and you're having such a huge impact for people do you have uh, the, the the bigger, broader sort of take of where you want to take it? Do you have those big goals for it? Oh, we absolutely do. And, and I think it's really important and that we've got to practice what we preach. And and the fact is that in order to get through challenges, you've got to set goals and you've got to have something that you're working towards in order to get through that challenge and come out the other side. So for us, we've definitely got big goals that we're working towards. And and there's a whole whole range of those for real-life resilience I mean, I can start with the fact that we want to be speaking both face-to-face and running online programs in uh, so many schools, not only just around Victoria, but around Australia. Uh, we're, we're getting more and more into running uh, community tours. So we're actually going and visiting uh, specific areas. So we've got one coming up later in the year where we'll be heading down to Gippsland and into bushfire-affected areas from, from the the black summer fires that I was actually stuck down in Malakuta for uh, a couple of years ago. And we're going to head down there, speak to all of the schools in the area and, and really hit the community as a whole, because I think when we can go to one school and we can, we can visit there and we can say, right, we've done our thing and, and we're off, but going to a whole community um, that's so interconnected, I think is such a really important part because not only are we hitting and, and addressing issues for, for students at one school, those students then go down to the sporting club um, and they've got the same support there and then they've got it in other aspects of their community. So that, that's a real goal for Real Life Resilience is, is to introduce more of these community tours um, in order to, to spread the message into areas in need, um, but also just have programs that are accessible to anyone at any time um, anywhere because we're, we're well aware that we are at the moment only two guys and we can only be in so many places at once so quite often there's going to be people out there that are feeling isolated or that are feeling like they're stuck in a rut need some resilience so I think the really important thing for them is to have tools online that they can access at any time um, in order to, to help them through that challenge and that change that they're experiencing Man, it's just wonderful. Look, I, I am, uh, you know, completely convinced that you guys are just going to keep going and going and going and the, the impact is huge. And I know that during this time specifically for each of us as we're listening and, and all that we're going through to uh, take that moment and say, all right, like you guys have been mentioning, you know, we, we can't necessarily change the circumstance that we're in in terms of what might, might be given to us, but we can take ownership of our circumstance. Then we can uh, look for those support around us, that control, and then, start that momentum. I think that's a remarkable tool and, and your stories are just so powerful. Thank you so much, uh, Mike and Ben, uh, for your time today. We wish you all the best in the birth of that little one coming later in the year as well, Ben. So thank you both for your time today. Our pleasure. Appreciate that. Thanks, Thanks for having us. From Real Life Resilience, Mike Rolls, Ben Pettingill, my guests, they're incredible, aren't they here? On 89.9, The Light.